Where do our desires come from? Do we genuinely, organically want the things that we want, or do we just want them because other people want them? I've been asking this question a lot over the past few months since I heard about the book that we are going to talk about today, and it's called Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life by Luke Burgess. I found him on Twitter and I found the things that he was talking about, the questions that he was answering so interesting. And it's really made me think about why I want the things that I do and really analyze my desires through the prism of my values. And that is what we are going to discuss with this author. I know that you are going to find this conversation fascinating and hopefully get a lot out of it. We're also doing a giveaway with his books, which we will talk about at the end of this conversation. But no more introduction. I want you to hear this. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie. All right. Now, without further ado, here's our new friend, Luke Burgess. Luke, thanks so much for joining us. Can you first tell everyone who may not know who you are and what you do? Hey, Ali, good to be with you. Sure. I'm entrepreneur in residence at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and I spent my 20s in uh, sort of in Silicon Valley. I was never actually in the Valley. I was in Southern California founding companies, and it was kind of the trendy narcissism of my day um, to be an entrepreneur um, and to look for quick exits, um, to make as much money as possible um, rather than being an Instagram influencer or a TikTok influencer. That was it for me. Yeah. And I did that throughout my 20s. I had some successes and some failures, but I got to the end where I had a blown up business deal. And I realized that I was really craving something that I wasn't able to find in, in that culture, right? There weren't any people around me um, that had um, sort of any kind of spiritual desires and those things were bubbling up in me. I was really dissatisfied and I was looking for more. And I ended up stepping away from everything that I was doing for a while just to take some time to reflect on what it is that I really was looking for, what I was searching for, why it never sort of seemed to be enough. And that led me down a path for pretty much the next decade of my life where I explored the question of, of human desire, why I want the things that I want, what are the motivations behind those things. Mm. And eventually this led me um, to, to really coming back to the faith of my childhood and, and thinking of entrepreneurship, thinking of myself in a very different way. And that is really kind of the basis or one of the bases of your book, which we will talk about a little bit later in this interview, why we want the things that we want. And I found that really interesting. But to kind of jump off um, what you said about your faith, I want to talk about a recent article that you just wrote called The Three City Problem of Modern Life in Wired. And actually, before I get into that, you said a phrase that immediately caught my attention when you were talking. You said trendy narcissism which is funny that you said that because I write about that concept and use that exact phrase in my book that I wrote a few years ago, this idea of trendy narcissism, which is kind of what has become um, what has become the popular, I don't know, self in the self-love, self-help world, the world in which women are kind of like manifesting their inner goddesses. They kind of say that it's all about self-care and self-improvement and self-empowerment, but really it is just a form of trendy 
narcissism. So you and I are on the same wavelength there. I just wanted to point that out. Um, But to talk about your article in Wired, the three city problem of modern life, you talk about the three cities, Athens, Jerusalem, Silicon Valley. Most people are familiar with the quote that you included. Um, What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Of course, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? That's kind of how people have said it over the years. And so you're talking about that it's not just these two cities now that are either in competition or are correlated. It is also Silicon Valley. So this is the problem of our modern era. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, Athens stands for reason, rationality, and Jerusalem is the world of, of faith, religion. So this, the question, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens or Athens have to do with Jerusalem, was posed by Tertullian in the third century. Mm-hmm. And in Tertullian's world, he, he didn't have to contend with the force that we know as Silicon Valley, which represents um, the human urge to create, right? Which is a, a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. We participate in the creation of God. And Silicon Valley, though, is we've, we've never sort of seen anything like the amount of capital, um, the amount of um, pure ambition and tech searching for technological process divorced from the world of faith, divorced from Jerusalem, in other words. And it can even be divorced from, from Athens. It can even be divorced for rationality because the driving force in Silicon Valley is creating value, creating utility, which is part of value, things that are useful without necessarily accounting for what they do to the soul or even whether or not they're they're reasonable, quite frankly. So I'm trying to make the case that Silicon Valley has sort of changed our relationship to reason and to faith. So a couple of examples of, of how I think that's happening. So think about how Twitter is changing the, like our relationship with rationality, right? 280 character Twitter debates. It is warping. It's very hard to have a rational argument on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And then with religion itself, right? Silicon Valley, during the pandemic, um, many people went to online church services. You had apps that give people ways to pray that were raising tens of millions of dollars and, and blowing up. Some people are still on them and not going back uh, to church, regular church services. So Silicon Valley is dramatically affecting reason, Athens, and faith, Jerusalem. And my point is, we have to come to grips with how these three uh, forces are interacting with each other and affecting the others. All right, quick pause to tell you about my first sponsor for the day, and that is my Patriot Supply. I know that you, like me, have been hearing about possible food shortages, and maybe you're trying to become a prepper or at least learn how to can and put things in jars, but... In addition to that, you should just make sure that you've got an emergency food supply for you and your family. That's why you need to order My Patriot Supply. They've got a three-month emergency food supply kit for you, and you buy one for every member of your family. It gets you 2,000 calories a day, lots of snacks, drinks, literally everything that you need. It's just better to be safe than sorry. It lasts for 30 years. Put it in your pantry, in your laundry room, wherever you put and store things away, just go ahead and get it. Get one for every member of your family. Go to my Patriot or prepare with Ali.com rather. Prepare with Ali.com and you'll get 20% off. 20% off your order at prepare with Ali.com. Prepare with Ali.com. 
one thing that you talk about is how um, different religions have tried to deal with maybe what is considered the problem of Athens, the secular philosophers trying to in some theologians' mind, kind of replace Christian thinking with secular thinking, with philosophical thinking. That, in some ways, is truly opposed to Christian theology. And one thing that you talk about, um, you talk about uh, Catholics trying to kind of use both, use the rationality, the reasonableness, the philosophy that comes out of Athens and kind of wed it with or pair it with um Christian theology. And then you and you say others are more skeptical. One of Martin Luther's fundamental tenets was sola fides or faith alone. Now, I'm guessing, and I know this is not the point of your piece, but I think it's interesting because I'm a Reformed Protestant, you're a Catholic. Um, and I would argue that, of course, that is not what sola fide means. That's not what Martin Luther means when he says by faith alone. He does not mean to the exclusion of intellect or to the exclusion of reason or to the exclusion of Athens. He is talking about salvation. That is also the difference between Catholics and Protestants is faith alone when it comes to salvation. Martin Luther said in his famous speech in front of the Deed of Worms is that unless I'm convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils. And so he actually depended on reason in his resistance to the Catholic Church. So when I was reading this, even though I think it's so fascinating and there's more that I want to talk about, that is one issue that I had, that sola fide is not an example of Protestants abandoning you know, good and sound philosophy and critical thinking in favor of Jerusalem. No, you're absolutely right. So throughout history, though, both Catholics and Protestants, there's a spectrum, right? And sometimes we've swung too far in one direction. And that's actually the point of my piece is that you have some, and by the way, I think Athens, Jerusalem, and Silicon Valley cut across political divides. I think there are people on both the right and the left that live in one of these three cities. My point is that any, and we're sort of clustering sometimes in one of the three cities. And, you know, you have like the scientism. I, I think of COVID was an example of sort of Athens and Jerusalem clashing, right? People in that sort of spent more time in one city didn't really understand where people in the other city were coming from, right? Like, what do you mean? I can't see my loved one in the hospital and visit them. Um, there's different hierarchies of values in the different cities. And I think the problem is like not having the integration between the three. So I sometimes get the impression that each city wants its own ruler. So those that are in Athens, right, the the strict pure rationalist would love to just, you know, elect a scientist as uh, you know president of the universe. Hmm. Um, those that are sort of in Jerusalem, maybe it would be uh, a pastor. And those that are in Silicon Valley might as well want Elon Musk to, to be, you know, the, the, the governor of everything using the sort of guiding force that, uh, that of that city, right? Um, reason, faith, or utility, or, or the creation of value. So my point is that we're integrated people. We're, re- we're religious beings, we're rational beings, and we're beings that do get joy in creating value. And by creating value, I don't just mean businesses and companies. Right. I mean creating families, self-expression, all of those things. And that the healthiest way to think about this is we, we need to, to reintegrate ourselves as human beings because if one city is dominating the discussion, um, we end up warped uh, without, without the ability to even speak to people that are spending most of their time in, in other cities, and we can't become isolationists.
Yeah. So how I kind of see it, and I'm interested to know like what exactly you think integration looks like. So as a Christian, I have a Christian worldview. Everyone has a worldview. And so everything that someone thinks is colored by their worldview. And so uh, how I see it is that rationality is going to be upstream from productivity, Silicon Valley, but upstream of both of those things is going to be religion, theology, what people think about God or don't think about God. Both of those things, I think, have to be influenced by what we think about who is in charge, why we're here, what human beings are, what right and wrong is. That cannot really be reasoned through rationally. And that certainly is not going to, there's no conclusion that technology can come to when it comes to morality and why we're here. Technology only asks can, not should. Um, And so when I think about like integrating these things, I think, okay, well, we have to get the, the top city right first. Like we have to get the religion, the theology right first, and then everything else is downstream from that. Obviously though, We all really disagree. A lot of us really disagree on that theological piece on what Jerusalem is. So what does it look like to then integrate these things in a healthy way among people in a pluralistic society, people who really disagree on the thing that I think is upstream from rationality and technology? I mean, I think we have to be able to have discussions about basic fundamental anthropology. What does it mean to be human? It seems to me like we're creating things without asking those fundamental questions about what it means to be a human person. And you're, you're absolutely right. We start with different presuppositions. And I do think that the, the big questions, right, the question of God is the fundamental question. Yeah. But it, it seems like we've abandoned even asking the question, right? You've just got people that consider themselves secular, that, that don't even want to have the conversation. And my point in that piece is that if we're not talking about the like a, a teleology, the end of all yeah. of this. What is life about? What is this all for? At the end right. of the day, we're going to be creating things for what I call in the piece an unknowable X, right? Like humans are just this unknowable X. Um, we're, we're just you know a bundle of atoms and cells, and we're creating things that are, are essentially doing violence to what it means to be human. So the thing that I've noticed, even with with my book, talking about desire, I've done so many podcasts, and many of them are with people that are secular. And they're like, well, where does desire come from? Hmm. And they want the self-help answer, I think. And my answer is, well, desire comes from God, right? Like we were were created by the desire of God in sort of an exitus reditus. And I, I've realized over the last 18 months, really, how hard it is to, to have discussions about mm-hmm. something as fundamental as why we want what we want yeah. if, if you, you don't agree on the question of where it comes from in the first place. Yeah, it really all does go back to that. And I think that I've realized that more than ever over the past few years um, is that, especially when we're asking such fundamental questions that really we haven't asked before like what is a man what is a woman what is a human being like why do human beings matter why aren't we just clumps of cells like what is beauty of course people have been asking these questions for a long time but some of these things we've considered settled and now we're re-asking them re-exploring them redefining them well at the end of the day it all goes back to who you think created us and how you think we got here and who is in charge and what are we i find it really hard honestly to talk about anything cultural or political social without going back to genesis 1 so i'm curious does that count as me kind of like 
clustering as kind of what you're talking about in this piece? Or is that just, you know, the way that a, that a believer has to think about things? I honestly feel like it's inescapable for someone who does believe that we come from God. I mean, I don't think that's clustering at all. That's that's just, you know, I, I think you're a rational person and we're having this conversation, you know, through using technology and, and you know, very much with things that Silicon Valley created. So yeah. we're very much li- living in all three at, at the intersection. And that that conversation, I think that Jerusalem is extremely underrepresented in national discourse and in dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I said that explicitly in the Wired article, but it, it, it certainly is. Um, I mean, I've lived in all three places. Um, you know, my my days as as starting technology companies, it's pretty much non-existent. It's extremely difficult to find people that are willing to have those kinds of conversations. And I think if you if you have no transcendent purpose, something that goes beyond this world, um, then wh- where like what what are we what are we doing here? Right? What's the purpose? I think this is why people are rudderless and purposeless. Uh, and I I've just when I ask the question, right, like what what are we building here and why are we building it? Um, is it just to extend our lives as long as we can? Like what what's the most people don't have any kind of teleology, right? Some right. kind of end game. What is this for? And what my book is all about is really summed up by, you know, Augustine, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Right. I could not find out why I was so restless. And it's because I did not have a desire that transcended this world, right? This world will never be able to satisfy all our desires. My wife can't satisfy all my desires. And when we begin to think that this world can, it makes us absolutely miserable. Next sponsor for the day, great sponsor is Annie's Kit Clubs. If your kids are into crafting, or maybe you want them to be into crafting, or maybe you just want them to be able to spend their downtime in a way that is constructive and good for their brain rather than just, you know, sitting in front of a screen and atrophying their mind, you should look into Annie's Kit Clubs. It is a craft subscription service. And so every month your kids get a new craft with all of the supplies and the instructions that they need. And the craft changes every month. It could be a woodworking kid. It could be jewelry making for your daughters. It could be a STEM project, all kinds of stuff. And everything that you need comes in the box that shows up at your front door. Perfect for kids ages about seven to 12. Check it out. You can cancel at any time. If you figure out it's not for you, there are no long-term contracts. Plus with my link, annieskitclubs.com, you can get 75% off your first month. That's annieskitclubs.com slash Allie for that discount. annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. On that note, speaking about desire and the things that fulfill our desire and why we have the desires that we do, you said ultimately they come, our desire comes from God. We come from the desire of God. That makes sense to me. But I am curious more about um, the subject of your book, The Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. And in reading it, I I mean, it seemed like a concept that I understand that everyone kind of understands. You see something on Instagram that someone else wants. You don't even really think that you need it. But because other people want it and because there's scarcity, you get it. I have a perfect example of this before we even get into your book, just to kind of set it up in like in, in a in a way that people understand when you're talking about mimetic desire. So there is this company called Stanley. I actually have like a a mini one right there for anyone who is watching. And uh, they sell these huge like 40 ounce um, 
mugs, jugs, kind of like a Yeti. I'm sure they would hate for me to compare it to another company, but it's got a straw and it's got a handle. I had never heard of this. I mean, this company has been around for a hundred years. They've made this product for a really long time, but I started seeing it on Instagram. And then when you go to their website, you see that it's constantly sold out. I mean, you have to be on some kind of waiting list. You have to follow really closely these bloggers all of a sudden. And so I'm just admitting like I am, I am definitely part of this culture and like have these kinds of desires. I want one. I didn't want one before. I was fine with my, you know, knockoff. I was fine with my Yeti. But if everyone has one and if it's so scarce and it's hard to get, well, then maybe I want one. And I will just say I ordered one finally this morning after my friend texted me and was like, hey, this person has a code. You can get it and have it. So when I was reading your book, that's what I was thinking of, um, that that we really do kind of want things because other people want them. And so is that kind of what set you up in writing this book? Yeah, it was the realization. I, I had this romantic idea that my desires are a, a, just a product of my autonomous self, that I'm the, the manufacturer and generator of all of my own desires. And the thinker that heavily influenced me, who I discovered in my late 20s, who really changed the course of my life, was a, a Christian named Rene Girard. And his insight was that we have this idea that our desires are just entirely our own. He said, that's absolutely wrong. We're human beings are social creatures, right? We rely on, on mediators of desire. We, we're not the generators of our own desire, right? It doesn't come ex nihilo out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, our desires are shaped and informed by other people. So the very idea, for instance, of self-love is wrong. It doesn't exist, right? The idea that love is just generated completely by the self is just fundamentally false, right? We're relational. Desire is relational. Love is something that happens in the context of a relationship. Mm. So a person that grows up who doesn't perceive that they're loved is going to find it pretty much impossible to love themselves, barring a grace from God or a relationship with Christ. Right. But our, our, our desire is is a product of relationships, worldly relationships, and of course, relationship with God, which is very, very important. Um, And when I look at my life in my 20s, I was surrounded by people that cared about very worldly things. So big surprise, so did I. I didn't want anything outside of the very narrowly defined accolades that many startup entrepreneurs want. So it was this realization that, wow, I am am heavily affected by other people. My desire is very social. I look at I went into college and right away I was affected by what everybody else was majoring in, where they wanted to work, and I, I just followed them. I was all the while convincing myself that my desires were entirely my own. I had I had no way out. And that's why this this idea of mimetic desire, which means imitative desire, mimetic is, is a word that comes from the Greek word for imitation. Mimetic desire means that we imitate the desires of others. And that's not a bad thing. We talk about the imitation of Christ. But we have to be very careful and understand what we're imitating, because we might be imitating. I mean, this is the the definition of sort of Satan, right? Is like Satan sets himself up as a rival with God and asks us to imitate him, right? Mm-hmm. So knowing who we're imitating, right, um, is is critical on a on a divine level and even on a worldly level. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about when mimetic desire gets to be a problem, like mimetic conflict. As you said, sometimes it can be good. You're following other people who have good desires. Sometimes it can be bad. What are some examples of that today, how that manifests itself negatively? 
I think one of the best examples is when we're in a mimetic relationship, we are looking to the other person to, to consistently um, model desires back to us, right? And we become a reflection of them, even people that we consider our enemies. So, um, it, I mean, this happens in politics all the time, right? Like people become a reflection of the very thing or, or people that they hate because we imitate rhetoric, we imitate aggression, we imitate violence in this kind of never-ending game when there's no, there's no model outside of that, that sort of one-to-one relationship, right? It could be between two people or between two groups. And escaping that sort of rivalrous mimesis is is really important and with if we have no transcendent perspective it's very difficult to do that because we become completely fixated on other people or on enemies and um you know we we end up becoming like them we become like that which we imitate we become like that which we pay the most attention to so you know this happens with uh, it happens in with in school with in, in high school um, I, I think of all the people that I've talked about this idea with, it's high school students who it resonates with the most because mm-hmm. they realize how easy it is for them to be looking to their right and their left and become obsessed with what their classmates want, with what they wear, with where they want to go to school, with what their goals are, um, to, the, to the point where they, they forget who they are. Um, and, you know, we live in a culture that makes it, 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 it's, it can take you down a path very quickly where you don't want to go. And if you don't think seriously about your own desires, other people are going to give them to you or tell you what they are. And before you know it, it's 10 years later and you've never seriously thought about how people are affecting what it is that you want. Is this what a world ruled by Silicon Valley looks like? A world that just says, well, what's most efficient? What's most fun? What feels the best? What can we do? But never asks, hey, what are my values? Where does this desire come from? What direction should we be heading? Do you think that those two things are linked the technology that has been created by Silicon Valley and this kind of mimetic crisis, if you will? I mean, absolutely. I think consumerism is fueled by people building things or telling us that the most important thing in life is satisfying our every desire. Hmm. And, and that's, and then if we buy into that, it's, it's never enough, right? It's, it's absolutely never enough. And the, the Christianity's idea, right, this idea is like, you know what, if we live in a world where we all narcissistically pursue our own desires, those desires will inevitably clash. We will inevitably just exacerbate more and more rivalry and competition for things that ultimately don't matter to impress people that don't even love us um, in, in status games. The idea is actually like, self-sacrifice. Maybe my desires are not the most important thing in the world, right? Maybe there are other people that need me, need my help. Um, and my desires, I mean, this, it's such a selfish thing. It's what this whole self-help industry is built around exactly. is that satisfying my desires are the, are the most important thing. They're simply not. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. not the most important thing. And there's this fundamental Christian paradox that when I stop thinking so much about myself and my desires and I serve other people, um, it's tremendously fulfilling and satisfying. It's like the whole idea of, you know, you have to die to yourself or lose yourself in order to find yourself. Mm-hmm. So the whole climax of the book and everything that I've sort of been, been my, my work for the last 10 years has been getting out of ourselves and, and serving other people, willing the good of another person rather than willing 
uh, what I think I want. And in most cases, I don't even know what I want. And Italian, where I lived for several years when I was in seminary, has a beautiful phrase, ti voglio bene, which is the way that they say I love you. But it literally means I want your good. I want what's good for you. And that's very different than me just constantly being obsessed with what I want and my goals. And when you make that flip, uh, the, the paradox is you end up learning that what you really want is to be in loving relationships. Okay, let me tell you about Crowd Health. If you are looking for an alternative, an affordable alternative to health insurance, then you need to try out Crowd Health. Unlike other health share companies, there's no maximum per incident. You can see any doctor that you want, and here's how it works. All you have to do is pay the first 500 of any healthcare event with Crowd Health, and then the Crowd Health community takes care of the rest. There's no exclusive doctor networks, no huge premiums or high deductibles, no surprises. We know the insurance model is broken, and Crowd Health is a better way to fund your healthcare costs. All you have to do um, is pay $99 a month for the first six months when you use my code anyway. So that's a a low fee per month. And then when those health incidents come up, you just pay that first $500 for most events and then CrowdHealth takes care of the rest. And so you don't have to worry about all of the different burdens that come with health insurance. You can make sure that you're taking care of and that you are also taking care of people in the CrowdHealth community. So take charge of your healthcare today with CrowdHealth. Open enrollment is the only time you can hit eject on the broken system without penalty. So don't wait and for a limited time join for just $99 a month for your first six months when you use promo code Allie at joincrowdhealth.com that's joincrowdhealth.com promo code Allie crowdhealth is not health insurance it's a totally different way of paying for health care term and conditions may apply it's also very different than the world's definition of love today, which is unconditional affirmation of someone's choices. How you just defined love, which is exactly how I define it, is wanting what is best for the other person. And of course, as Christians, as God defines best. That's why we don't celebrate sin. That's why we don't celebrate destructive behaviors. Because love that means unconditional affirmation of someone's choices, even if they're wrong, even if they're lies, even if they're unhealthy and hurtful to those around them, is not what's wanting and what is, it's not what is in their best interest. And so it actually is ultimately selfish because really what you're doing is you're making it easy on yourself. The hard thing to do is to actually love someone and to tell them the truth. I mean, that puts you in an awkward position. That puts you in a self-denying position because it's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. Um, And so I think part of this like mimetic crisis and that you're talking about is like very flimsy definitions of what love looks like because it is ultimately selfish and ultimately just about what feels good to you. If you love somebody, you you need to be willing to tell them the truth. And if you really, if you truly care about what's good for them and and what's best for them, and I think we live in a world where we our desires are far too small, right? As C.S. Lewis said, yeah. right? The problem is not that our desires are too great; it's that our desires are too small. Mm-hmm. Um, and we satisfy ourselves with these with these petty little things, right? We satisfy cravings by going on a new diet or buying some new thing. Um, there's things to make ourselves feel better. And love is not a feeling. 
it's not a feeling, right? Love happens in the context of loving acts in relationships. One of my favorite parts uh, or scenes in all of literature is in the Brothers Dostoevsky, where this old widow comes to this old monk priest and says, I've lost my faith, right? I'm, I'm, I'm depressed. I don't know God has abandoned me. And he says, practice act of love, practice loving people in an active way, not love in dreams, not love in your imagination, but act of love, attending to the needs of the people mm-hmm. around you. And you, you will regain your faith. You will then understand, right? So it was, in a sense, it was her telling her to, to get out of herself, right? It's the opposite of what most people are counseled to do today, right? Yeah. Acts, acts of love. Yeah. We're constantly told, even by professing Christian teachers, that you can't love other people until you love yourself, which is a very privileged and sad way to think that you can't go out and meet the needs of other people until what? You've accepted the cellulite on your thighs until you like the reflection in the mirror. I mean, that is a fundamentally wrong understanding of not just love, but also what compels us to love, which is Christians. We believe that the love of Christ compels us to love. And if we have that in abundance and unconditionally, then no matter how we feel about ourselves in any given moment, we are empowered to love other people. And that is why, like, constantly in this conversation, I'm thinking, wow, Christianity really is, like, the only rational answer to so many of the problems that we have today. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, disruptive empathy what do you mean by that disruptive empathy um is a word or or a phrase that i heard from my friend gil bailey um who used it and and it basically it's the mimetic thing to do is when somebody hates us or when somebody is aggressive or passive aggressive to us it is to imitate them it's almost instinctual right to, to do that that is extremely mimetic behavior anti mimetic behavior is something we have the ability to do as humans, which is to rise above the instinctual response and to love somebody even if they don't love us. Mm -hmm. And empathy is one way of of, of doing that, right? It's refusing to play the mimetic game of sort of tit for tat and to respond to people with the love of Christ, even, even if they've never experienced it before and even if they're hostile towards us. And I tell a story in the book of, of why I sort of learned this lesson in a very scary way. When I had a, a, a guy who was essentially a hitman show up at my door in Las Vegas wow. um, to, to, to collect uh, some money. Uh, and he, he and I engaged in roughly a week-long standoff with this. And one day uh, he found out that I was having a company party at my house in Henderson. And he invited himself over to the party. And he showed up. And by the end of the night, uh, he he decided that he just wanted to have like a human conversation with me. He ended up sort of crying in my arms. I essentially practically cried in his arms. And he disrupted the, the sort of cycle of animosity that the two of us had between us. And we realized that there was a, there was a misunderstanding. Um, it, it, like within one second, the entire relationship was changed because he stepped out of the mimetic sort of role that that he was playing. Um, and that sort of, you know, is something that I've realized that I have the power to do in any relationship in my life. Um, I'm not a slave to the, the, the behaviors that other people are, are displaying to me. I can choose to respond, right? I'm free to respond in a, in a, not in kind, but when the situation calls for it, it always calls for it in a loving way, right? I don't need to just enter into the logic of, 
of the of the the, the form or the way that other people love me. But it's it's tempting to do that. It's almost instinctual to treat other people the way that they treat us. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and there is, I mean, there are toxic forms of fake empathy. It almost seems like the idea of empathy is weaponized today, that if you don't agree with me on this political issue, then that means that you are unempathetic. Again, kind of going back to what I think is the wrong definition of love, that if you're not unconditionally affirming someone's choices or identity or whatever, that means you are being unempathetic. Empathy is sometimes used, or at least the word empathy is sometimes used is like a way to just like bludgeon and manipulate and uh, extort your political enemies into believing what you believe. But what you're talking about is a true loving other people as Christ loved us, forgiving other people when it's hard to forgive them, loving other people when they are unlovable, stepping out of your own selfish desires in order to um, be compassionate towards someone else. It reminds me of your conversation or your interaction with the hitman, which by the way, I feel like there's a lot more to that story. Crazy story. There is. <laughs> uh, Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath. Um, and that is kind of the Christian life is responding to hostility and vitriol and anger with kindness and love. Yeah, I, you know, th- I mean, we, we need to be able to enter into another person's experience um, and and understand it without necessarily having to say that we agree with with all of it. And it seems like, you know, we're, we're really confused, right? I think that sympathy literally means to, to see with the eyes of another, to see things the same way. Uh, empathy is, is a bit different, right? It means that I can enter into the experience of another without losing my own self-possession, like losing my self-possession. Um, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. for most of the year. Uh, and in my uh, in my younger days, especially when somebody would sort of you know, approach me on the street, right? Like pitching some hardcore thing at me or asking me to sign something. I remember a couple of times I was sort of like feigning agreement with them. And then I would get five minutes down the block and I'd be like, wait a second. <laughs> and I was like, it's so, it's so easy to lose our self possession, right? We're scared to speak the truth. We're scared to enter into those conversations, but real empathy, not the fake kind of empathy where you just have to agree with everything that another person says or thinks is being able to enter into the experience and say, you know what, I do understand what it's like to be confused about who I am, but that doesn't mean mm-hmm. that I necessarily agree with the way that you're going about this this search or here, like, I, I want your good, right? So without without abandoning myself, my beliefs, my, my values, without speaking the truth, that would not be loving another person. Okay, last sponsor for the day, and that is, of course, Good Ranchers. Good Ranchers has an awesome deal on their meat right now. When you use my link, goodranchers.com slash alley to get your box of all American better than organic chicken and craft beef and even awesome seafood. You also get four free pounds of meat, two pounds of Wagyu ground beef, which is what we use the most in our house, and two pounds of our better than organic chicken breast. I just love Good Ranchers. It makes my life so much easier. I use it every night almost. It just I just don't have to think about that. All I have to think about is sides, but I know that I've got my meat taken care of. 
I make everything that I possibly can with Good Ranchers meat. It's just so good. And like I said, it's all American meat. Plus the people who own Good Ranchers, they're really great salt of the earth people. You can feel good about supporting. So go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. You'll get your four free pounds of high quality beef and chicken when you do. Make sure you subscribe. That saves you a lot of money per box. You can cancel at any time, but it shows up right to your front door on dry ice. Really awesome deal. Go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie. Tell me about the mimetic future, what we will want tomorrow. Well, so this is where the three city problem really, I think, comes back into play, where we have Silicon Valley, um, which, again, stands in for uh, a desire to innovate and create, which is a, a good thing. Right? As humans, we, we all have this desire to, to, to be co-creators, co-creators with God. But when it becomes detached from teleology, when it becomes detached from fundamental questions about who we are as humans and what we truly desire, then we, we risk building things and creating a world in which we sort of just eliminate human desire altogether, right? There are certain sort of like communist governments, right? Like desire is something that they, they would prefer that people all desire the same thing or don't have any desires at all, right? There's like an active effort. Desires are dangerous, right? So we can try to control other people's desires and engineer other people's desires, build things that engineered and, man- and manipulate desires, um, or we can do the hard work of of transforming desires as a culture. So one is like sort of a, a top-down approach, right? And then the other one is a, is a bottom-up approach that depends on human relationships and starts with those fundamental questions of if if we as a culture completely reject God, then our desires are going to be very, our desires can go no further than the things that Silicon Valley creates, right? And we're always going to be, we'll, we'll be never satisfied, constantly consuming, because that's that's as big as our world, our universe of desire is. So again, it goes back to that idea of, you know, C.S. Lewis, right? Like we we don't desire enough. And I just wonder what what would happen in the world if we if we thought of ourselves as and the things that we're building as affecting our desires. I don't think that almost anybody who's building things thinks about the way that it's affecting human desires. Is this helping people want more? Is it helping them want less? Is their desire moving horizontally, or is it moving vertically? Um, yeah. You know, we're not building cathedrals anymore. We're not making beautiful art, um, and mm-hmm. it seems to me like we're we're sort of moving sideways. And I think the future of desire is going to depend on how we think about that question. Yes. Um, I want to just give kind of the practical advice that you tell people in your book, just a few of them. There's really kind of 15 things that you tell people to do, but some of them that stuck out to me was find sources of wisdom that withstand mimesis, create boundaries uh, with unhealthy models. So that means distancing yourselves from the people who function as unhealthy models of desire, establish and communicate a clear hierarchy of values, which of course is important for anyone, but particularly Christians. Map out the systems of desire in your world. Put those desires to the test. Just to kind of close this out, like what do some of those things look like? What does putting your desires to the test look like? And then living, as you say in your book, as if you have a responsibility also for what other people want, not just what you want. Well, putting my desires to the test or putting your desires to the test means 
not taking them not taking them for granted and not assuming that what you think you want is the most important thing in the world right think reflecting on where it's coming from is this a desire that's been generated by a social media app that i've been scrolling um which i call a thin desire in the book and a thin desire is the kind of desire that's kind of here today gone tomorrow it's not grounded in anything real it's it's just been it, it just evaporates like a pile of leaves that blows away as soon as there's a gust of wind right and I, we've all been like that we've all really wanted something and then we get it and we don't care about it and we throw it away the very next day those that's a good indication that that desire is thin of course thick desires right these desires that are grounded in uh, in in real things in the love of God right and the th- and the desires that ultimately I would say are the desires that are pointing us towards eternity, that are pointing us beyond this world. Those are the desires that nobody can take away from us and that will never disappoint us. And it's really important to test our desires up front, right? There, there are certain ways, like, what does this do? Is this is fruits of the Spirit, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Scripture tells us how we can begin to test our desires, to understand if they're bringing us sort of the, the you know, the, the, peace, of, the peace of God, if, if we're becoming more loving, if we're growing in faith, hope, and love, great indication that that might be a non-mimetic sort of a, a thick desire that's grounded in something beyond the mimetic moment, right? The current thing. So testing desires is something that we can all learn to do. It's a skill that we need to develop. It's a skill that school doesn't really teach us. You know, school education really doesn't teach discernment. If you don't no, learn how to discern Maybe in the, the family, they do the opposite, right? You're not going to learn it. So you, you need to realize that that skill of discerning your desires and where they come from and where they're going is the most important skill that, that you can learn. Awesome. Well, I really encourage people to get your book. You are sending us five books for a giveaway, which I'm super excited about. Um, we decided, okay, so the first five people um, who haven't already subscribed to my YouTube channel, who do subscribe to my YouTube channel and then comment that you want the giveaway, we will send them a book and my team will reach out to them and send them uh, and get their information and all of that. Wanting the power of mimetic desire in everyday life, you can pick it up, I'm guessing, wherever books are sold, online, probably, uh, you, you know, your brick and mortar bookstore as well. So this was super interesting. I just recently started following you on Twitter and I was like, I need to talk to this person. I've never really heard anyone talk about it the way that you have. So I just appreciate your thoughtfulness so much and the work that you're doing in this arena. Uh, where can people follow you? How can they support you? Thanks so much, Ali. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I'm at LukeBurgess.com and I write a weekly substack called Anti-Mimetic, which is really all about trying to behave in uh, in uh, anti-mimetic ways, right? Just rejecting the negative forms of mimesis out there, right? Like all of these illusions that are ultimately going to disappoint us. Yeah. Wow. So interesting. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Ellie.